This podcast is made possible by the generous support of Macrogenics. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo, the senior editor at BreastCancer.org. Our guest today is Dr. Dawn Hirschman. She's professor of medicine and epidemiology at Columbia University. She also serves as leader of the breast cancer program at the Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center at Columbia and is nationally recognized for her expertise in breast cancer treatment, prevention, and survivorship. A member of the BreastCancer.org Professional Advisory Board, Dr. Hirschman also has conducted extensive research on breast cancer treatment and quality of life. She has published more than 250 scientific papers and has received the Advanced Clinical Research Award in Breast Cancer from the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Advanced Medical Achievement Award from the Avon Foundation. Dr. Hirschman is also on the editorial board of the Journal of Clinical Oncology and is an associate editor at the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. In our second podcast on clinical trials, Dr. Hirschman is going to talk to us about the results of clinical trials, including how the results are used and how patients are told about the results. Dr. Hirschman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Once a clinical trial is completed, what happens to the results? How do you use them? So that's an excellent question. Um, Even when a trial stops accruing, sometimes it takes even longer to get all of the results. So depending on what the study is, sometimes, you know, the the primary time of interest is a year after the last patient goes on trial. Sometimes it's not until, you know, a certain number of patients have had a recurrence or even, you know, have have died, depending on what the endpoint of the clinical trial is. So um, the way studies are done, they're, you know, it's determined when when you're going to analyze the data based on what the most important endpoint of that study is. And it takes a long time to make sure that the data is clean and it is as you as you think it's going to be. Um, but um, ultimately, once you've analyzed the data, you go exactly based on what you put you were going to do in the in in the study protocol. Um, and once you get that information, you want to get it out so that you can change care. Uh, both positive studies and negative studies have uh, a really um, Im- important information to give. Uh, and so um, you want to make sure that people learn of the results, no matter what those results are. So the the two ways we get that information out there um, is, one, by presenting it at national meetings. Um, and in the breast cancer world, we can either present it at cancer general cancer meetings or breast cancer specific meetings so that, um, you know, a lot of people can hear the results at, at one time. And we also try to publish it in major journals. In addition to publishing it, you know, there are thousands and thousands of journals out there. You want to make sure that people pay attention to your results, especially if you think that they're going to change care. So you have to work with the media and press to make sure that not only do physicians or scientists hear about the results, but the patients hear about the results too. And that can happen through the general news media, but also through patient advocacy. That brings up another question for me. For the patients who are in the trial, do they hear about the results along with everyone else, or do they get any sort of special preview of 
what happened in this study or are they updated as things are going along? I'm just curious, is, is there some sort of, of, of early uh, information that's given to them as a sort of a thank you for participating? The, usually when the results are known, they're um, not made public until what we call an embargo is released. So until if you're at a meeting and you're presenting it, it's usually the day before the meeting before anybody can find out the results. Or similarly with a paper, you can't really give those results out until the paper is published. So unfortunately, you can't, you can't disseminate results until, um, you know, the the pre-specified date by either a journal or conference, even to participants in the trial. But what we do, depending on the type of study, is try to send letters out to all the participants explaining the results. And if it's a blinded study, letting them know what arm they were in. Um, as As a scientific organization, in general, we're not great at that. Um, Sometimes it can take a long time after a study before the patients find out what arm they're in because, um, you know, it does, it can take some time to go back and and track that information down. Um, But if it's a big study, if it's a study that's going to impact the patient themselves, then a priority is made to um, disseminate that information quicker. When we were first talking about how long it takes for the, you know, once the trial ends until the results are published, is there an average time that that might take just, and there may not be, but I'm just curious, like, is it, you know, I don't know, three years, five years? So, you know, again, it depends on the, it depends on the study. I mean, do you mean complete by, if you're, if you're talking about once the study's complete, meaning that all the patients have been enrolled and followed up for the most appropriate period of time to assess the endpoint, as soon as all the, um, the information has been gathered to analyze the data, then usually it's analyzed fairly quickly um, and presented within six months. That's, um, you know, in the um, cooperative group, we have rules for that. And that as soon as the data is analyzed, um, uh, it has to be either presented or submitted to publication within six months of um, those results becoming available. That's actually much faster than I thought because um, knowing if there are a lot of authors on a paper and everyone needs to have input and review, I thought the process would take much longer, but that's actually seems fairly quickly, six months. Right. I mean, you have less control over smaller studies that have fewer rules, but for larger studies, especially studies that can have, you know, potential impact or practice change, usually the um, investigator knows ahead of time that the results are being analyzed. So, um, you know, there's time to, to prepare. Of course, you know, the, um, if, if things don't turn out the way you wanted them to, or if you have to do more analyses, it can take a little bit longer. Um, but in general, for like a large treatment trial, um, the data aren't made available until they've been reviewed 
by multiple statisticians at a very high level. Um, but I think that the commitment is to try to get that information out as, as quickly as possible. Now, it's one thing to submit it to a journal versus having it be accepted from a journal. And that process in and of itself can either be short or very, very long. Um, and investigators don't have a, a lot of control over that process. That's a good point. That's a good point. And that in some cases, I think, may help explain why we may hear about a study, say, being presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, and then you see the same research published maybe three, four months later in a journal because, you know, one came first, maybe the journal took a little bit longer to decide to publish it. So that really isn't uncommon from my viewpoint. I see a lot of research done that way. Yeah. And three or four months is a short period of time, right? Because it can take, um, you know, sometimes if you present something at San, at the San Antonio Breast Conference, you might not even have all the data ready to write up the paper. Um, and if you submit it to one journal, just, you know, in terms of the process, it could go back and forth with reviews. It could be six months and then the journal might decide not to take it. And then you have to start the process all over and go to another journal, even if all the results are complete. So um, the process can take, you know, a couple months, but it could also take, you know, over a year. And even when a paper is accepted, it can then take several months before it's actually either put online or, or published in a journal. Yeah, there's a long publishing calendar. Can you give us some examples? Uh, you talked about how clinical trials can change the standard of care. Um, can you give us some examples of, of when that's happened? Um, you know, it, and also, is there an average time when, say, a study that's considered like, oh, this is going to change the standard of care? How many times does that have to be replicated or supported before the standard of care actually changes? Sure. So, you know, there are, again, you know, when you think of some of the most recent um, studies in patients with breast cancer that's hormone receptor positive, such as the class of medications called CDK4-6 inhibitors, um, you know, those, there are a variety of different drugs. The results were so impressive that it really quickly changed the standard of care. Um, of course, practice doesn't change until the drug is approved by the FDA. But once you start to have, you know, very strong results that um, have the potential to keep people alive longer, um, you know, people have a tendency to change their practice very, very quickly. Um, the, you know, the things that sometimes stop that are, again, related to availability of a drug, like from the FDA. Um, and, um, you know, even cost of the drug that, that, that might stop people from getting it. Um, but usually when you have a very good drug, you know, after one study, multiple studies then come out after that confirming those results, more and more people feel confident uh, using that drug in practice. 
other studies can come out that can change the standard of care based on maybe less evidence if the risk is much less to the patients. For example, um, if you think of something like scalp cooling, where there was one large randomized trial and one observational study, both of which showed a real benefit in terms of scalp cooling to preserve hair with very little, you know, risk to the patient. Um, even, uh, even a study like that can result in practice change almost immediately as long as people have access to that type of technology. I see, because there's, there's really no risk to the patient to try it, or, or very minimal risk, I should say. Nothing has no risk. Um, and just to backtrack a little bit, when you were talking about the CDK4 inhibitors, are, are those medicines things like Ibrance? Is that? Exactly. Ibrance or palbocyclib, ribocyclib, abemocyclib, there are three of them. And, and those drugs all have, you know, really substantial substantial changes in outcome, um, practitioners feel very confident using them. There are other times where we change care maybe too quickly. And you can think of an example like that might be something like Pergetta or Pertuzumab, where, you know, many people, the FDA approved, wanted to get that drug, have it be accessible to a lot of patients very quickly based on things like tumor shrinkage. Um, but then, you know, when the large trials looking at survival or disease-free survival came about, the results were a little bit less impressive and showed a benefit, but very, very small benefits. Um, so you always wonder in that circumstance, would you have changed your practice on so many people if you had known how small the benefits were up front. So it can go in both directions. Earlier on in the podcast, you talked about both positive trial results and negative trial results being helpful and possibly changing practice. So to explore that a little further, positive results, I'm assuming, means that you have a, a new drug and you find out that it works better than the current standard of care. Uh, perhaps an example might be when research found that for postmenopausal women, aromatase inhibitors were a better treatment for hormone receptor positive breast cancer than tamoxifen was. And so that kind of became the standard of care there. Um, can so if that's right, um, could you also give us an example of how a negative study can help either change the standard of care or, or, re, or be informative? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I can think of an example based on a study I did, which was looking at a supplement uh, that was really being used a lot to prevent peripheral neuropathy uh, called L-carnitine. And there was a lot of information on the internet, for example, that it was very effective. It was effective for a variety of conditions. Um, and there were no treatments available for the prevention of neuropathy that can come from taxanes or other chemotherapy agents. So many people were just taking it because they were buying it in, in a 
um, health food store. So we conducted a large study, randomized placebo control over of many hundreds of, of women, and found that the patients that got the supplement actually had worse neuropathy. And so that would be considered a negative study. Um, and what, you know, to a certain extent, you can inform patients. So people that were taking this, you know, where there was no evidence that it worked, now we have evidence that you really shouldn't be taking it. Um, and so that can, that can really help inform, you know, patient decision-making. That's really good to know. And also, too, sometimes I read studies where people are looking to see if a new drug or using a drug in a new way is better than the standard of care and the results show that mm, it's about the same. So that then I suppose reinforces that the standard of care is still the thing to do. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes we think that the new, each new drug is going to be better or, you know, if there's a good rationale for it, it it works, but that's why you have to do studies. I mean, when I was a fellow, many patients got bone marrow, many women got bone marrow transplants for breast cancer um, because, um, you know, the early data suggested it worked and people didn't even want to be on clinical trials because they believed it worked so much. But then when those trials were actually done, they found that not only did it not help, but it caused a lot of toxicity. And so, you know, that's where, you know, sometimes the things that we think we know the answers to aren't, aren't always, um, don't always come out the way we think they're going to. Right. Now, there are some factors, uh, and I'm thinking about diet, exercise for reducing the risk of breast cancer. Those are notoriously difficult to study in clinical trials. And can you help us understand why that is? Absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's a lot easier to give patients a pill that they can take and you can monitor whether or not they took it. And then there's a placebo that they can take and you know it doesn't have the active ingredient. When you look at things like diet and exercise, we don't know, um, you know, both groups eat and both both groups move right so you you know it's it's a, you don't have as much control over what people do and don't do and while a lifetime of diet and exercise can affect outcome we don't know sometimes if we do a study of 6 months or 12 months of changing somebody's diet if that's going to affect you know long term long term outcomes but controlling what people do and how they behave for even a short period of time can be very difficult, let alone a long period of time. So um, behavioral interventions can be very, very challenging because you can have what we call either drop in or drop out. So people that were maybe randomized to the diet and exercise arm may not be compliant with that intervention. And people that were randomized to the usual care group may start to change their diet or exercise. And so that can make it difficult to see a difference between the two groups. That makes sense. And also, too, sometimes I read about studies where, especially for diet, 
they ask people, well, tell me what you ate when you were 15 years old. And the people in the study may be women who are now in their 50s and 60s. And I know I personally probably couldn't tell you what I ate last week <laughs> unless I kept a food diary. And so then when the results come out and say, oh, you know, women who ate a lot of, and I'm just making this up, sugar when they were 15 have a higher risk of breast cancer. I'm always slightly skeptical about that because I'm always wondering, are these people really accurately remembering what they ate? Right. And there's recall bias that's associated with those kinds of studies, right? So if you have breast cancer and you think there might be an association, you may be more likely to say, oh yeah, I must have, I had a lot of sugar, so that must be why I developed breast cancer. So there can be a lot of misinformation based on biases that can come from that type of, of research. Those kinds of studies are good for getting a sense of associations, but um, they're, they're subject to a lot of methodologic problems because they can be inaccurate. Sometimes we use observational research like the study that you just designed, de described to help us define, you know, areas that we should do interventions in. But part of the reason why sometimes interventions don't confirm observational findings can be maybe because the intervention wasn't good enough or it didn't go on for long enough, but it could also be that the observational findings aren't accurate or are biased. Um, and you see that a lot with, um, you know, sometimes with nutrition studies. Um, for example, um, I'm going to use a study that was done a long time ago called the CARAT trial. And there was an enormous amount of evidence from observational studies and animal studies and even some small experiments that beta carotene was good for cancer prevention and especially for lung cancer prevention. Um, and they did a huge interventional trial and found on thousands and thousands and thousands of people and found that patients with beta, that took beta carotene actually had who smoked had actually a higher risk of developing lung cancer. Um, and that's been found with other supplements as well, such as um, selenium. And so sometimes that's why sometimes the, there can be a discrepancy between what you find retrospectively and what you find prospectively in trials. Okay, very good to know. Now I, I read about some trials being stopped early because the results were either very good or not very good. And can you help us understand, you know, why, why would that happen and how good do the results have to be or how bad do the results have to be when it, you know, before a trial is stopped early? Right. So, you know, every study has what's called a data safety and monitoring board and their independent group of comprised of people with various different expertise, usually statisticians are among them, that at very, you know, that at pre-specified times, look at the data. And um, you, these are set up for really for patient protection. Um, and they have pre-specified before the study what they consider success and what they consider failure um, of a drug. 
So sometimes trials are stopped early because very early on, there are a lot of toxicities that weren't anticipated and that are, um, you know, more in one group than the other. And so if that is the case, they'll stop a study early to make sure that they've protected people who participate in the trial from having an, an adverse consequence of being part of it. Sometimes, um, they'll find that the results at a certain point are so similar between the two groups that even if they were to follow those patients for a longer period of time or enroll more patients, they'll statistically never find a difference that's meaningful. Then they'll stop a study early, both to save effort and, you know, to save um, time. Um, Sometimes um, there'll be such an impressive result between two groups, um, especially for a disease that doesn't have any other treatment, where, you know, even if sort of the opposite, those results will be, are so strong that even if they were to put more patients on or follow patients longer, they'll still be, the trial will still be considered a success. And then you want to be able to um, offer everybody that medication. So those are, those are some of the reasons why a study might be stopped early or stopped um, for both good and bad reasons. And when a study is stopped early because of good results and, you know, the new treatment seems to be amazingly better than either the placebo or the current standard of care, then I've read in several studies where the, the patients who were on the, the not new thing are allowed to switch over. Yes, that, that does happen. But sometimes it doesn't happen um, when they, when they want to look at secondary outcomes such as um, survival. Um, often, you know, studies are designed in two different ways. Some studies allow a crossover like you, like you, um, like you described, Whereas at a certain point, if a patient progresses, they're offered the drug um, so that, you know, they have that opportunity. But other studies are designed in such a way that they can't get the drug until it's FDA approved. So um, depending on what the most important outcome of that that trial is. So, um, you know, sometimes it it works in that way to the patient's advantage and, and sometimes it doesn't. If the study is such that the patients are allowed to cross over and get the the more uh, more helpful treatment, how are those results written up then? Is does the study just end then when people start switching, or are the the people who switched over are they monitored to see if they have the same results? How does that how does that work? Usually, for those studies, the primary end outcome of those trials is the time to progression, right? So once a patient's progressed, so to speak, that's the end point of that trial. And then they can go on to the other drug if, and, and it won't affect the results. But if the study is more subtle and looking at long-term effects um, and they're trying to get a drug approved, um, sometimes by crossing over, you can dampen the overall effects or make it impossible to find a positive effect. And so 
in that case, the study design, you know, they want to stay true to the original study design so they can get the drug approved um, by the FDA. That's helpful. One last question. In your mind, how important are clinical trials to the future of breast cancer treatment? They've been critically important for, you know, 35 years in terms of getting us to where we are now. It's really the only way we can continue to incrementally move the field forward. Um, you know, progress is sometimes um, not always so, so clear cut when you're in the middle of it. But when you look at the history of what, what's happened, um, it's really uh, in, incredible, um, the op, you know, the options we have now that we didn't have in the, in the past. Not everybody is right for a clinical trial, but there are a lot of different ways of participating in research that can um, not only help you as a patient, but also help the scientific community understand how to either better treat breast cancer or prevent breast cancer or even pre prevent the side effects from, from breast cancer, make people live longer. There are all different types of, of ways of, of obtaining knowledge. Dr. Hirschman, thank you so much. This has been a hugely helpful podcast. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Happy to help.